Welcome, a very warm welcome on this very chilly afternoon to Allen Hall Theatre. I see a lot of familiar and friendly faces in the audience, so a lot of you are very familiar um, with this space. Um, my name's Hilary Halber, and um, I have the privilege of working here uh, at the University of Otago in Allen Hall Theatre in the Theatre Studies Programme. Um, I'd also like to introduce to you Amanda Faye Martin, again, probably known to many of you. Amanda is our playwriting fellow here in Theatre Studies, and she is a both uh, a playwright and a dramaturg, um, and she is a very popular teacher with her students at, um, at Theatre Studies. Um, it's my privilege this afternoon to welcome a very warm welcome to extend a very warm welcome to Professor Tim Jackson. Uh, Tim joins us from the University of Surrey and is a special guest at the Science Festival. He's known as an environmental economist, and some of you might be familiar with his um, uh, latest book, Post Growth Life After Capitalism. In addition to his academic work and why we're here this afternoon, Tim is also a playwright. Um, and he has a number of BBC writing credits to his name. You can listen to his plays on his website, and I'm sure that many of you will do that after this afternoon's session. I recommend them very highly. Tim's environmental drama series, Cry of the Bitten, won the 1997 Public Awareness of Science Drama Award, and he has won other awards for a number of his other plays. He also sits on the Air New Zealand Sustainability Advisory Panel. We're going to start this afternoon by um, playing an excerpt from one of Tim's plays, uh, Death of an Altruist. The world is full of beauty. Full of beauty. I see that now. Beauty and pain. Pain, pain, pain. In almost equal measure. A finely balanced composition. A tapestry of opposites. No. Woven together in shades of vermilion. Scarlet in crimson. No. Anytime you want some good advice, I'm going to Make you my breakfast. Yeah. And now that I see it, lay it out like this. you get any aggro here, just call up the station, I'll be right over. Lay it out against the sky. This one don't give no trouble, do you, George? Hmm? Uh, how much I owe you? Don't worry about it, on the house. Okay. Oh, thanks, Gino. What you got there, mate? Uh, scissors. You be careful with those. Left and right carotid artery. Don't want to give the wrong impression now. Either side of the larynx. See you later, George. Uh, yeah, later. You take care with them scissors now. Poor bastard. Got no money. One of your regulars? Been coming here for years. Don't hurt to no one. Prevention is better than cure, Gina. 
Seem pretty quiet here today. Still Christmas, I guess. Mm, I won't pick up until the new year. 1975. <laughs> no seem possible. Three quarters of the way through the 20th century already. Right then. Here we go. Full English coming up. Oh, smells good. Angie, Angie, Angie. What a happy little tale. A big hit for the stones that was in the summer before last. And here's another chart topper from 73. From sadness to madness. Who would have thought you could have put a top ten best-selling album by putting a microphone in front of a madwoman screaming at the top of her lungs? Strange, but most definitely true. Here it comes. Morning. Cup of tea. Oh, no, thanks, I'm, uh, I'm looking for someone. There's no many here. Uh, George Prater. Big guy. Grey hair, you know? George, sure, I know him. Have you seen him recently? Who's asking? Angel. Angel of who? Oh, listen, um, if you see him, uh, tell him Angel was looking for him. Angel, right, I tell him. Thanks. Matter of fact, you just missed him, Angel. What? Where? When? Just now. He's been here this morning. Yeah, I mean, he's just left, I don't know, a couple of minutes ago. Well, where the hell did you say so? I did say so, oh, I just... For goodness sake! I did say so, if you did put down, I got someone... What do they want from me? Some people. <laughs> Those eggs okay for you, Jack? Perfect, Gino, perfect. And now that I see it laid out like this, like... like a patient etherized upon a table, it suddenly dawns on me that... I have always thought, almost subconsciously, always believed without ever articulating it, let's say I have never entirely excluded the possibility that the balance could be tipped, even at the very last moment, in favor of hope, in favor of life, in favor of what is best in us. Jackson. Thank you. Um, so, Tim, warmest mm. warmest of welcomes uh, on Thank this chilly Dunedin day, and it's yeah. so lovely to have you here in it's Dunedin. It's nice to be here. A little so, bit nervous because I'm sat between the director of theatre studies and a dramaturg, and you know what the job of a dramaturg is, don't you? Is to correct plays when they go wrong. So I kind of imagine that Amanda's been listening to all my plays, analysing them and telling me, well, she's going to tell me later how much better they could be. I liked them a lot. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Can I just say that? Nerves yeah. gone. Yeah. Very good. Thanks. <laughs> um, so, Tim, you're a playwright. Tell us a little bit about your, your uh, background and what led you to, to writing dramatic writing and writing for the theatre. Yeah, it was, a, it was a little bit of a kind of accident in a way. I mean, I, was, I always, as a kid, I was a writer. I just loved stories and I loved writing stories and they were mostly just rubbish and they were very short and I thought I was going to be a novelist. And then I, in, in one of my, um, the parts of my university education, I had the chance to work with a professional theatre director who was working with the students on a couple of productions. And it kind of, it, it brought theatre to my attention in a way that it hadn't been before. And I acted in a couple of those plays, and I did some stage management and lighting design. I sort of fell in love with the theatre. And so one summer, I just thought I would take one of my short stories and see if I could turn it into a play, a short play. 
and, and so I did that. And the play um, was, first of all, uh, we produced it in, in the university, in a, just a little theatre like this, actually, not, not very dissimilar. And then from there, it was selected to be in the National Times Student Drama Festival at the national level. And from there, it was picked up as a, interestingly, as a radio commission. And so that's how I became a radio dramatist, almost by, by accident, really. But, but from that point, actually, I began to sort of, you know, feel very comfortable with radio as a medium. And I had connections with radio producers. And so I found myself, or at least I thought, uh, this is my career. I'm going to be a playwright. And so you're a playwright who's a, an environmental economist on the side. Yeah, that's uh, that's how I think of it. Really, that's my that's my vision of the world is that that I'm a playwright who accidentally got sidetracked into whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing as an ecological economist. If you want to know, come this evening, and we'll talk about that then. So that's at the petri dish this evening. That uh, that, yeah. that part of your career is going to be. Uh, under the spotlight, yes. Yeah. I don't think it'll be as kind of, you know, nice and theatrical. And I love this little, feels like we're in a set. A little living room. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if we can talk about radio plays in particular. So mm. I feel like a lot of things in life just happen by accident. Like I also kind of accidentally became a playwright. Mm. Um, but you accidentally became a radio playwright. And so I wonder mm. if you can talk a little bit about that kind of medium in, in, in particular. I think, as I mentioned, I really enjoy listening to radio plays. Um, to be honest, I had never listened to radio plays before yours, so I don't really know what to compare them to. Um, but at the same time, like I think I often very much rely on visual aids. Yeah. But the first one I listened to of yours was um, the first episode of Cry of the Bittern. Yeah. And I was like just very impressed and interested and in just how you were able to guide us through time and space because you take us into the past and we have all these voices and there's no, um, there's no you know, stage directions. We do have a, narr a narrator, but I don't know. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about yeah. just writing yeah. for radio in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, radio drama is an old art form. It was there before we had telly. Oh. And so... Some of it is still quite old-fashioned, but actually I think what I found when I was working as a radio dramatist that it's a very filmic medium because basically you can layer... It's like a soundscape, really. You can layer sound and you can layer the past against the future or the present against the future and you can layer different voices from the same character over each other at the same time. You heard that in that extract. So mm -hmm. George Price, let me tell you a little bit about the death of an altruist because it is, and it's one of the things that we want to talk about, is the kind of science in drama. And Death of an Altruist is a play that is very much about science. It's about a character called George Price, an absolutely fascinating character, who uh, trained, in fact, as a nuclear physicist and then worked on the Manhattan Project during the, the Second World War. And then he came, he divorced his wife, who was very, very religious. And he came to London, really, to get away from the whole mess of a career he didn't want and a marriage that wasn't working, and a sense of, of his own almost devout atheism driving him forwards. And he happened to read a paper about altruism. And he got completely fascinated by this paper. Um, and the paper basically was a genetical explanation of altruism. So using evolutionary biology to sort of, if you like, ex not exactly explain away, but explain altruism. Altruism was this really difficult problem in Darwinian theory. Darwinian, Darwin actually himself thought that the problem of altruism might sink the theory of evolution because how can you select for a characteristic which harms you? And, and so... 
Price read this paper, and it was a paper by a guy called Bill Hamilton, and he thought, this can't be right. I don't believe this. And he set out to disprove it and ended up proving it in the most elegant, beautiful way. The Price equation is, is the sort of mastery of, of uh, mathematical ele elegance. And, and he showed how altruism actually can be selected as long as the act of the altruist helps people who he is genetically related to. And, and that gave biology a way of thinking about altruism in genetical terms. Um, but the trouble with it, of course, is it sort of does away with what we like to think of as altruism, something kind of you know, moral, something, something human, something other regarding, something almost divine in our character. And, and he was so offended by that idea that he overnight converted from devout atheism to devout Christianity, gave all his goods away to the poor, ended up destitute, and in, on his final day, and that's the beginning of his final day that you hear in that scene, he goes away and commits suicide with the scissors that the policeman in the play recognizes, you know, says, be careful with those scissors, George. And uh, he goes away and slits his carotid artery on both sides and bleeds out in a squat in London. And of course, that's a very bleak, you know, that's a very bleak sort of view of things. But what you can do, it, what you can do in radio, which I, which I really like and lends itself to that sort of story, is that you can, you can explore the moral basis of that. You can explore the scientific basis of it. You can have conversations. The, the construct in the drama is that a policeman is brought in, he finds the body, and he finds a pile of letters. And he invites the people who were the recipients of those letters into the building to try and figure out why this man committed suicide. So what draws you through the action is this sense of wanting to know why George Price killed himself at the end of 1974 on a cold winter's day in London. And at the same time, you can soundscape that. You can make it about 1974. You can bring in the people that he was destitute with. There's one key relationship with a woman that he was trying to help. And you can, it can also bring his thinking into that process. You can get inside the character. And that's something I, I don't know that you could do all of that in any other medium. You could certainly do some of it, and you could do a lot on, on stage in different ways. You'd have to sort of think about how to represent that. But on radio, you can, you can sort of layer these sounds, and you can layer the ideas, and, and it gives a very rich, sometimes demanding, but very rich listening experience. Hmm. Yeah, that's quite a moving story, you know? Just like the, the actual you know, history of that is already so moving. And I guess, um, I, I think in a way you've kind of already answered this question, but I think, you know, whenever um, I'm taking, um, you know, a historical event and trying to adapt it um, for the stage or for whatever dramatic medium I've chosen, um, I always kind of ask, like, well, like, what am I adding to this? Like, other than the mm. story itself, like, what am I... What am I doing as the dramatist? And obviously, you know, you have this very clear dramatic question already um, that you've created. Like, you know, why did he did he kill himself? But I don't know. Like, what do you like? What do you gain from it? What do you see yeah. yourself bringing to the story on top of the story itself? It's a, it's a really good question. I mean, it is. It was for me. You know, that central question. It's almost like. And this is to refer a little bit to my academic career. If you're an academic researcher, you have a research question. And you follow the research question. You use a methodology to follow the research question. My question, when I heard this story, and, and, and as you say, it's a really moving story, is why did he do it? Why did it play out that way? What was going through his head? And part of what was going through his head was this enormous 
historically important set of ideas around evolution and how evolution has shaped us and what kind of society we are and why it is that destitute old men can die in the cold in a lonely flat and society doesn't care. And so, and that to me, you know, that's a kind of, it, I'm not sure that it's adding to the history, but it's, it's a way of immersing the concerns of today in a historical story, in a personal story, in a biographical mm -hmm. story, and being able to tease out through that some of actually what concerns me, I suppose, in my, in my more academic career and, and the social problems, how you solve social problems, why society is like it is today, how it could be different. And, and, and you're doing all of this whilst telling that historical story. And you're also, and I think this is really critical and doesn't always happen in history, you are creating that human moment of a man at the end of his tether with the best intentions in the world and, and trying to understand there but for the grace of God go I. And, and, and that's, that's the sort of driving force for me for those kinds of historical stories. It's very similar, I'll play it a little bit later on, but it's very similar to the character of um, Ludwig Boltzmann in, in a play called Papa's Clean Soup, but we'll maybe come to that later. I also was moved by that, by uh, Death of an Altruist, yeah. Um, and I love the way that you layered music of the time. I think I said to you before we came on, I've got a Rolling Stones earworm now from the beginning of that play, but also reference to uh, T.S. Eliot's poem, the love song oh. of J. Alfred Prufrock yeah. in there, you know. Yeah. And so that kind of modernist concern about, you know, what's my life about and yeah. what have I done with my life? So I think... You know, I think there's a lot of complexity that's that's been layered into that work, but it's also a very human work. And so I guess thinking about that, it's kind of obvious what drama offers science, right? So drama offers science a way to kind of make make its discourse palatable to us all. But I'm wondering what about the other way around? Does science offer <laughs> yeah, drama? Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting question. I mean, you could answer it in a very simplistic, slightly facetious way. It offers content. <laughs> so, you know, and, yeah. and not many artists go in, instinctively to science for content. Uh, but there's masses of it, you know, when you start looking. Uh, these extraordinary stories about extraordinary people and extraordinary situations and very, very dramatic sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's a part of what it offers to... to um, to art, but I think, and I would also, I suppose I would say that um, it also offers a place where art can engage in depth at the intellectual level and do it authentically because you're choosing situations which are about real dilemmas and real people. Maybe I could, do it, shall I illustrate yeah. it with another? So this is, a, this is a play, if I find the right one, this is a play about human cloning, which I was commissioned to write by the World Service. And of course, if you'd start talking about human cloning, first of all, it's complicated. Second of all, it's contentious. Third of all, we don't know that much about it. Fourth of all, it's usually carried out by shady people. And fifth, it's hovering over us like a kind of, you know, a prospect, a specter for the future that we just don't know where it's gonna lead. So there's this whole science called reprogenetics which is based around, when started really with in vitro fertilization, but it went on from there into a whole bunch of ways of 
you know, selecting the gene of your child so that it was a blonde, blue-eyed male tennis player or whatever, and, and, and into the sort of full gamut of the idea of cloning. And, but the story is a personal story. The story is about a couple whose child is dying from what looks like an incurable disease, which requires a bone marrow transplant with an exact genetic match. And the, only, the best way to get that exact genetic match is to have a cloned sibling. So this couple arrives in the Cayman Islands, actually. And just to go back to your question, I love music. So I love music in the plays. And unfortunately, my extract doesn't have it, but I could use a steel band in the Cayman Islands, which was just a, a brilliant kind of musical backdrop to it. But they arrive in the Cayman Islands to visit a slightly shady clinic run by a, a German guy, Austrian guy, called um, Dr. Zweibel. And in the process of talking with Dr. Zweibel, they begin to have doubts. And in the middle of the doubt, suddenly the story gets out that this couple has come to clone their dying child. And so they rush off and they escape to, the, you know, they leave the, the daughter in the care of the grandmother and they go to this clinic and they confront, they make their way literally through the, the, the press, the paparazzi at the door, and they confront um, Dr. Zweibel. And this little extract, if I get it right, <laughs> um, this is, this is the sort of confrontation scene. And for me, it's about the way it deals with the underlying science. It's not a sort of science jargon piece at all. It's actually one of my favorite themes, which is the relationship between science and a religious view of the world. Let me tell you a little story. Can't breathe properly. Well, maybe you should have some brandy. Once upon a time, we all lived in the Garden of Eden. What? Hey, man, says God, welcome to paradise. I really don't now, think... Now, there's a joke. Oh, pardon me if I don't laugh. You're supposed to laugh. Why not? Because it isn't funny. Then why are you telling us? Because I want you to understand something. What something? Something which has taken me a long time to understand. I'm not surprised. Something which has taken mankind a long time to understand. Which is? We never were in paradise. Is that the truth? From the beginning of time. We're forced to play dice according to God's rules. What rules? Eat what you like, says God to Adam, except these juicy apples. Those rules. <laughs> What's wrong with them, says Adam? They look just fine to me. Mm. In fact, they're better than fine, as we now know, because these apples is the fruit of the tree of knowledge. But God, in his infinite wisdom, tells man, don't eat. It's just a parable. But worse is to follow, because along comes the serpent. And, of course, it turns out women got no resistance to oh, serpents. Let's stop blaming women, shall we? I'm not blaming women. Who do you blame? Why don't you listen and I'll tell you. Yeah, so tell me. So, when the serpent tells the woman to eat, she forgets about God and listens to the serpent. You're missing out Adam's role in all this. I was just coming to it. Because guess what more? Men got no resistance to women. Ain't that the truth? So when the woman says, eat... He ignored God and listened to his wife. And before you know it, bang, he presto, we eaten off the fruit of the tree of knowledge and got cast into exile. What has this got to do with anything? This got everything to do with anything because I got some questions with all of it. With what? With the story. What questions? Well, first of all, what was the serpent doing in the Garden of Eden in the first place? God put him there. And second of all, how come women got no resistance to serpents? How come men got no resistance to women? Good question. But worst of all, how come God forbids us to eat off the fruit of the tree of knowledge when he knows damn well this is the only thing which can save us? Maybe it was a test. A kind of a test. To see if we had the strength to follow the rules. Which rules? God's rules. Rules which leave us stranded in a dark place 
with no means of bringing light into our own life. Maybe it was a setup. What setup? Maybe he wanted to see if we had the guts to disobey. Ah. Maybe we were supposed to disobey. So now you're talking. Well, if that was the test, we passed it. Eve passed it. We all passed it. Thanks to Eve. Yes. Yes. Thanks to women got no resistance to serpents and men got no resistance to women. Thanks to God put knowledge in our path and gave us the strength and ingenuity to find it. Thanks to apples and serpents and women and trees, we found our own way out of this phony paradise. No more dice. No more lottery. Just one strong road running due west right out of Eden. And leading where? The Cayman Islands. Leading someplace better than God provided us for. The arrogance of the man. Arrogance! How would you describe it? You know I love Vienna. So why don't you go back there? When I was a child in Vienna, five, six, seven years old, I was happy. Why don't you pack up all this nonsense and go home where you belong? Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Yeah, you must be close to retirement by now. I lived a long time, it's true. Maybe too long. And I'll tell you one thing. One more thing. The worse is getting your eyesight, the clearer you can see. The world today is a better place. Better than what? Better than it was yesterday. Are you sure about that? Better than when I was seven years old in Vienna. Are you absolutely... Watching my sister to die. What? So that's... that's uh, You know, to me, that's... Because the, the drama and the art come through the human story and the science, actually, and the relationship of the science to that story is what creates... The, the dramatic tension through that piece and, and these conflicting interests, you know, a family that's desperate to find a solution to their dying child, a technician, Dr. Zweibel, who at first just seems to be someone trying to make his name in an unsavory business. And then suddenly through that, you know, what drama does through that, it, it elicits actually a philosophy of life that, we, we were never in paradise, and human ingenuity has given us a quality of life that we couldn't have aspired to. And I, I just, I mean, just to say that's not necessarily my view, but it's, it's that I can use a character to express that view, and then I can use another character to counter that view, which is, which is also, you know, something that drama, drama is giving to science, I suppose. But science is giving to drama the possibility of having those conversations in dramatic ways. And of course, the thing that strikes me about that extract, that play, and others of your plays as well, is the place of faith and religion uh, in those works that is, it has a complicated relationship with the science in the works, I think. Yeah. I mean, the relationship between science and religion has been complicated since <laughs> Darwin, actually, really since Darwin, possibly before that as well. But, but before Darwin, really, science and religion were more or less aligned. After Darwin, you know, we lived in a world where, you know, kind of, as various people have said, there was no room for God. Uh, there, was, there was no need for it. We could explain the world without divine intervention. But in the, in the, in the same token of throwing away the need for God in the construction of the world, we threw away the need for God or some sense of morality in keeping society social and sociable and moral. And, and that's, a, you know, that's a potentially dangerous place for civilization to be. And to me, it's part of actually, to, get, to refer again to my, my academic work, once you've got religion out of the way, 
you need some kind of secular strategy to cope with devastation and loss and tragedy and meaninglessness. And one of my arguments in my, my, my other, other life, as it were, is that consumerism has provided that task for us. It gives us a sense of hope and a sense of brightness in the future. And of course, it's deeply flawed because it also destroys the planet and it doesn't even end up satisfying us. But it's such an important task in society that went missing when science sort of eliminated that faith-based structure of meaning in the world. I was brought up actually as a relatively devout Christian. Um, my father was a lay preacher and you know he went to church every Sunday and I was in the choir and I liked the singing and then I it turns out it was really just liking the singing that was all that was left when I began interrogating the belief structure more deeply but somehow it has kind of come back through the plays and that sort of sense that faith offers something that sometimes science can't provide. And I suppose um, the, the horribleness of consumerism, uh, the last play of um, Tim's, the last radio play that I listened to was a play about the ivory trade. And I said to Tim yesterday, I didn't want to listen to it because I really like elephants. And I was afraid that there were going to be multiple dead elephants in the play. Spoiler alert, there were. Um, but I, I suppose it was interesting because it showed the kind of insidiousness of consumerism. Because mm. in that play, of course, it reminded me that all the beautiful piano keys of all the beautiful pianos that I've ever seen are made out of the tusks of some poor elephant. Yeah, the, the central character is basically a piano player. Mm. He's a, the son of a caretaker of a, a, a quite well-to-do English estate and he's in love with the daughter of the people in this estate. It's a kind of, you know, the play is about un, almost unrequited love. Um, and I, I want to pay you this extract only, only because, you know, this is something that you can do on, it's different on radio, but if you're trying to deal with a really difficult subject matter, one of the things you can do with lighten it with something that almost everybody's interested in. One of the things that almost everybody's interested in is sex and sexual relations. And, and this is, kind of one of the ways, so not the only way, but it is one way to do radio sex. So um, I'm just looking at the audience to make sure this... Do we have an R18 rating on this extract? A, <laughs> so I'm just going to play this, this little extract. I hope it's the right one. Um, and it just comes, it comes from that moment of the almost of the unrequited love of this one character. And you can also see here the layers that we were talking about before, because you have the, the older character who is actually... We find out later in the play he's in conversation with one of his, one of his kind of collaborators on the tour, and um, and so you hear these voices who are people who aren't there during this one scene. The play is called The Elephant's Foot, and it actually came to me from somebody told me the story. It's a true story of they went to Africa and they camped in in um, somewhere in I think it was somewhere in Kenya, and they woke up one night and they looked out of the tent door and they saw an elephant's foot right outside the door. So this is, and this is what, this is kind of what I created the play around in a way, uh, that one moment, but then it became something about the ivory trade when I became interested in the ivory trade, partly through my activism. What? It is dark, pitch black, my heart is pounding. Melissa! Mm. 
Melissa, there's something outside. Mm. Wake up, I think there's something outside. What? I think there's something outside the tent. Are you sure? I don't know. I thought I heard something. Where's Moses? He's gone. Where's the gun? It's in the Land Rover. Damn. What are we going to do? Let's take a look. I'll go. You're not dressed. Neither are you. No. You look then. I creep forwards to the doorway of the tent. The mosquito net hovers lightly, shifting and rustling in the faintest of night breezes. Can you see anything? I lift a corner of the doorway flat. And there, in the gradual lightening of the African dawn, on a high plain overlooking the restless ocean, I see it. See what, Joseph? The elephant's foot. <gasps> what? What is it? What is it doing? It isn't doing anything. It's just there. For what seems like eternity, I stare at it. The question's running raggedly through my mind. What should I do? Can I frighten it? Can I shoo it away like we did with the foxes? How heavy is an elephant? How fast can it move? What does it want from me? Do elephants sit down? Do elephants roll over? I am sure, as I consider it, that they do. Isn't that just the sort of quaint drawing-room picture Gloria would have hands paint for her bridge circle accomplices? Except that those would be baby elephants, rolling on open grass, immaculately mown, and softened by Hans's fraudulent brushstrokes. I don't like bloody picarass. The sort of elephants that would entice from little old ladies a whimper of maternal affection, whereas this elephant... Joe? This elephant is enormous. There's nothing soft or playful about it. Its skin is hard and leathery, tough as old boots, and caked with the mud of Africa. Joe! I feel a cool hand on my back. Joseph, what is it? I turn round to face her. What is it? What's out there? Nothing. Joseph, you didn't. Are you sure? There's nothing there. You wicked boy. <sighs> Come back to bed. Her hand moves across my shoulder, down my arm, and then it stops. In the dim light, I catch the glint of her eyes, moist and wide. Joseph? For a long time, we are both perfectly still. I should say all three of us are still. There isn't a peak from the elephant. Joseph. Melissa. I reach up my hand and touch her soft, smooth skin. Oh, my goodness. Melissa. Oh. So this is it? Yes, little Joseph. Hold me. This is really it. <laughs> Hold me. Don't let me go. So this is what 17 is like. You funny boy, you make me laugh. Joseph, hold me. I'm holding you, Melissa. Hold me tighter. Yes. Kiss me. Kiss me. Kiss me again. Again. Kiss me again. Yes. Hold me. Kiss me. Touch me. Suddenly, she is the warmest, the most passionate... Suddenly she is a leopardess, grasping at me, pulling herself onto me, abandoning herself. Oh, Joseph, don't ever let me go. Don't leave me. Don't ever leave me. Don't abandon me. Forgive me. Don't forsake me. Don't leave me. Don't abandon me. Forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me.
Sorry about that. I kind of, I, 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 I kind of like it, but, but of course it plays a, it also does play a very important part in the play. The next day is the day that they discover the elephants and the daughter that Joe is in love with discovers that it's basically her family that's engaged in the ivory trade, which leads to the destruction. So it kind of, um, it's one of those sort of moments where, where you, you, you hope that it's a happy ever after ending, and and it turns out to be a sort of critical point. So I th you've already talked about this quite a bit, but I feel like the way that you make your um, you make your radio plays not they they never feel like overbearingly scientific or historical, even though that's kind of the material that you're dealing with. Um, and as you've talked about, like the, I think your approach towards that is like it's always about people, you know, and the relationships yeah. between people. Sometimes the sexual relationships, which, which also like makes us care about them, you know, and yeah. we understand that he cares deeply for her. And um, yeah, but I guess I think like exposition is often an issue for a lot of writers, and I feel, I feel like with a radio play, we have no you know visuals to help us out. So I just kind of wonder like how else you grapple with presenting information to um, a presumably like lay person public um, who may or may not know very much about the, yeah. the, the, the content without sounding like you're lecturing to them. Yeah, I mean, the one thing you can't really, you just can't do in, 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 in art is to lecture, it seems to me. And mm -hmm. it destroys the integrity of art. And, and there's, there is a little bit of a danger at the moment when we talk about you know, art for climate change, for example, that a lot of climate change scientists and politicians think that means you know, policies failed, economics has failed. Let's use art to solve all the problems that society has not been able to address. And of course, you can't because that's not actually really properly art. It's not, it, you, know, you can't just use drama to, to lecture people. But you can use drama to tease out actually the very uneasy path towards transition because you can put the arguments in the drama and, and you, can't, you can't always do it directly because you say some of the language is scientific. So you have to always be asking yourself as the writer, how can I say this in a way that will reach people that is accurate to the science, but is not lecturing the science? And then also, you can, what, and this you can do as a dramatist, but you can't do as a sustainability professor, is to say, I want to then confront that with the opposite view, and I want that opposite view to present itself against the arguments that we are, we have what we have to do in order to save ourselves from climate change, or what we have to do to save ourselves from water pollution, or what we have to do to develop in a different way. And you can have, you, and and actually, because you know the essence of drama really is conflict. That's something that you you should be doing in a drama, and we should be doing in in our thinking about the issues. We should be putting ourselves in the place of the other people with the other arguments, so that we understand it. I think this took me quite a long time to get to as a playwright. In fact, it was one of the reasons why, in the beginning, I resisted writing about scientific subjects, because I did not want to be the professor talking to the students and scribbling on the blackboard or whatever. You know, I, that's not, what, to me, what being a playwright was ever about. But one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating was that, you know, as I began to find this form and find myself, my way into it, I found that some of my strongest characters were people whose views I fundamentally disagree with. And that was a real surprise. You know, it's the point at which you're, you're engaged as a writer, you're writing the story. You, you do that by having as much silence as possible and hearing the voices. 
And as long as you have the right characters in, in your orchestra of voices, they will say things to you you never expected them to say, that you never even knew were out there, arguments that you hadn't thought of come through these characters in ways that you know, are, are absolutely intrinsically honest to the subject matter, but also a great foundation for drama. Absolutely. That's all very well said. You're a very interesting person to talk to. I, I, I'm quite enjoying this conversation. I hope my students listen to this, conversa this conversation on the radio. This will be on the radio, yes? Or something? Playable? Online? Anyway. Um, uh, I have, yeah, so I was listening to The Elephant's Foot this morning, and um, something that struck me about listening to a radio play that was different than watching a television show or, you know, a stage play was that, like, I found that it was kind of a hybrid between watching a television show and that we can go between all these settings, time and place very easily, but at the same, and also like reading. Because um, I feel like when I'm reading a book, often I'll um, stumble across a sentence that's just very compelling and I like hear that sentence in my head. And I feel like with the radio play, I, I could do that. And um, there was a line in The Elephant's Foot um, that was like, do you care about the black man or the elephants? Right. And I was like, wow. I, I feel like if that was in a television show, I wouldn't have heard it as much. Yeah. And it was from a character who as you said, you have these characters who are not like the good guys, they're not the protagonists, and yet they're making these like really compelling counter arguments. And I was really interested and moved how you were able to do that. And it obviously doesn't feel like lecturing, it's just presenting this extremely complicated situation. Yeah. Um, Moses, Moses in that play. I mean, he was, yeah. just, he was just great because, you know, he just came in really to the story. In fact, he came into the story as I was writing it quite late because it was clear that the economic motivation at the local level for the ivory trade was the benefits to people like him who had no other means to live. And of course they were being exploited by Derek, the father of Melissa, who Joe was in love with, but they were genuine characters in their own right. And when he came in, I didn't know what's quite what to do about it. So Moses appears to be a totally minor character all through that story. He's deferred to, He's referred to, you know, in a disparaging way. He's, he doesn't have many lines to he's say. He's the, the guide for the two main characters. He, he the, was the person who was supposed to be... He was Derek's right-hand man yes. in Africa. And so he was looking after his daughter and the people who were travelling there. And at a certain point, he just disappears and leaves Joe and Melissa on their own, which is why they're able to be in a tent and eventually lead to that scene that we just heard. But then he reappears on, on at that, you know, scene that you dislike so much and it is horrendous it is it is it's horrible but it's also you know it's interesting how radio can you know make that in a in a way that's so evocative and then and then it you know then it became clear to me as i was writing that moses is the character who holds that moral middle line and and you know has lines that almost go missing out of the play but when you catch them as you say they kind of bring you up short, and, and it's a really important, you know, it's when I found that, I had found the construct for the play, which actually, I had originally started writing that as a short story, and it didn't work really as well until I found that character, and it was kind of that process of listening to character and listening to the people who are involved in that situation speak. It is, the, the scene that um, Tim was referring to uh, is a, you know, a scene that horrified and moved me so much is when the two protagonists come across a, just a field of murdered elephants, killed elephants that have been 
um, killed for their ivory. And there's something about that pic- that being in one's own head, you know what I mean? Because in a movie, we all see the same picture, right? Mm. But in radio, we evoke that picture in our own head. And I've got, um, I guess, my the picture I had in my head of that scene is different from the one that you had, Amanda, perhaps the one that you imagined when you wrote it, Tim. Yeah, so... I don't know if there's a question in that or just to kind no, of... No, I think, I think that's true. It is something that, me, that radio as a medium has that is different. It's less defined than film, but it's very filmic in the way that you can create these layers. Um, and, and it is something that lives in the imagination. I mean, I kind of think we started out talking about how radio is a kind of old school form of entertainment. We've got our old school radio there, thanks to Marty. Thank you for that, Marty. And, and, you know, and it has that sort of sense to it. But I kind of feel now, now that we live in the world of podcasts, mm-hmm. now that we live you know, in the world of audiobooks, actually that radio drama should burst out of the radio and, and become something that, that has that, exactly that sort of richness, that ability to take the story with you in a very intimate way and to interpret it in your own way. And, and I think, in, in a sense, you know, actually, it's, it's sad because radio drama in Radio New Zealand, for example, and in the BBC has been decimated over, over the recent years. And yet, at the same time, we've seen the rise of the podcast, the rise of the audiobook. And to me, it's a very natural, it sits very naturally between those two rising forms. So I hope it has some kind of renaissance. Amanda's much more of an expert on the podcast than I am, so I might defer I love podcast podcasts. questions to you, Amanda. I guess what I'd most like to know from you is, like, what are your thoughts about, yeah, like, the, the future of radio drama um, within the world of podcasting? Like, do you have any particular ambitions to, I don't know, write like a... Because I feel like the... Um, I like the episodic nature of Cry of the Bittern, and I mm. think like that's a lot of podcasts are kind of episodic yeah, right. in nature. So I'm kind of like, well, I don't know. Is that something inter- you're interested in? Do you have any advice for students or people who might be interested in writing radio drama for podcast, the podcast? I think my verse? principal piece of advice is be careful who you sell the rights to. Um, <laughs> because actually we could take Cry of the Bittern and turn it into a 15-minute pod- podcast right now, 30 episodes of it. Mm. And it would be great. I would love that to just be out there and to be kind of available. Um, and, and the way that drama was done in the past. I mean, of course, there are reasons for those rights. So all of the plays that you're hearing were played, performed by professional actors. And of course, that is their time. That is their energy. They've given their creativity to it. And so, you know, rights has a place in protecting that time that creatives give, mm-hmm. that artists give, including the actors. Um, but on, on the other hand, you know, there's such an enormous potential to have things out there in the way that a book is out there or a podcast is out there. Mm-hmm. Last year, a couple of the plays, actually plays that I wrote 20 years ago, were rebroadcast on BBC Sounds. But they were there for like three weeks. And you can go to BBC Sounds and look for them now. And there's a homepage. And it just says, not currently available. And it basically does that because the way that rights were constructed in that old model of radio drama doesn't allow for them to be available to people. And that's almost tragic, you know, in the sense that this art mm-hmm. is created and it's, 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 it can play a part in the richness of our lives that, that is different now that we live in a different age. And yet we can't make it accessible. So I think, you know, somewhere in that podcast model is a way of doing radio drama that will bring it back to life. 
And I, I would really like to see that happen. So, are there students here? I don't know. Well, I'm going to give that job to them because I'm, I, I know I look young, kind of, but I'm not. And I don't, I'm bad with technology. <laughs> and the, I don't know anything no, about the internet. You just team up with a tech guy from Silicon Valley or something. They ought to come here That's to New Zealand I mean. anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. So, a tech guy, you can email me. Yeah, I'm, okay. You can look me up on the yeah. university website. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, have we got, are there other extracts that you I would really lot, I've like us to lots of extracts, but yeah. I was, I mean, it would, would be nice to have some conversation. I was yeah. going to kind of finish on this one. It's a little, it's, it's a way of bringing together all of those things, really. The content of science, the content of human story, the layering of story in radio drama, and also the bringing through of human story. So this is a, this is a very, um, it's, again, it's quite a tough, I mean, probably tougher than the sex one in some ways. Um, but this is, uh, this, is, this is one of my plays, it's a favorite plays in a way. It's a, play about, it's a play about the physicist Ludwig Boltzmann. So, and Boltzmann to me is a, is a key character in science because he formulated a specific law in physics called the, the entropy law. And uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the entropy law, but the entropy law is essentially that the tendency of things is to fall apart. It's easier to kind of, um, there's, there's one formulation of it. It's, it's, you can't unscramble scrambled eggs. You know, once you've made the mess, it takes a lot more energy to put it all back together again. And just before he died, Boltzmann gave this lecture to the Philosophical Society in Vienna. And I, I, I mean, this, this work is interesting to me from an environmental point of view for obvious reasons, that we live in an entropic world. We live in a world in which when we, whenever we spend energy, whenever we engage in material processes, we are to some extent creating chaos. And what we hope is that temporarily that chaos allows us to build some sense of order in the world. But what we do with that order matters massively because it simultaneously creates chaos. So if we, if we use it to build consumerism and sell bling to people and destroy the planet, then we are wasting the precious resource of being on a finite planet. But this essay, this lecture that Boltzmann gave was called on um, a, me uh, a mechanistic explanation of the entropy law, this particular piece of physics, and of love by means of probabilistic reasoning. And so here is a physicist talking about love and relating our understanding of the world to love. And what I, what I was trying to do in the play was to explore what he might have said in that lecture because there isn't a surviving record of it. But I think what he was trying to say is that in this entropic world, we spend our resources wisely. And we, we spend them on the things that matter. We spend them on you know, things that ultimately are incredibly unlikely, like the complexity of human life and human emotions and ultimately of love. And, and so the play was really exploring those ideas. This extract, um, and it comes from the title of the suit, refers to the last day of Boltzmann's life, um, in which they were staying in Duino on holiday just before he was due to go back and start teaching again at the University of Vienna. And he was not in a good state. Um, 
but he had promised this holiday to his daughter. His daughter is the main narrator in the play, and she's the person who kind of carries the themes of her father, but also carries something else, which I'll talk to you about at the end. This is Papa's clean suit. We've got all this clearing up to do. He's got to be back in Vienna by tomorrow at the latest, and I still haven't had that suit clean. Does it really matter? Go and fetch it for me. When he stops, I'll creep in. Just knock on the door and ask him for it. I won't ask anything. Why on earth not? All I want is to watch him work. He's working. All I want is for him to lift his hand and ruffle my hair and say... <laughs> my angel. Though he won't remember saying it. He never remembers anything. He won't even notice I'm there. And yet, if I ask one simple question... I don't ask questions. All I get is grief. I don't say anything. All I get is bad temper. But, Mama... All I get is abuse. Don't you see? No, I don't see. You're like a rock in the stream. Disrupting much. the smooth flow of the tide. Trying to keep things from falling apart. Breaking his concentration. And what suddenly qualifies you to be Papa's little angel? I'm only saying... His principal apologies? I understand him. And I don't. I I'm not saying that. What are you saying? I'm saying he needs time, he needs peace, he needs space. He needs a clean suit before his lectures start on Tuesday. <sighs> so if you won't ask him where it is... Mama, please, don't do this. Then I will. You mustn't. Get your coat and gloves. It isn't fair. Wait for me here. The truth is, nature herself isn't fair. It isn't fair. And she makes no pretense of fairness. Louis? Take appendicitis, for example. Louis, I need your suit. It's not only unfair, it is stupidly, irrationally cruel. Louis, can you hear me? What is it? I need your suit. What on earth for? To get it clean. Oh, for goodness sake. Think about it. An infection in a small cul-de-sac of useless tissue that no longer serves any purpose in the human body. A forgotten twist of the digestive tract, endlessly reproduced out of sheer habit, like an empty gesture. There. Was that so hard? Like a smile when the recipient has gone. Was that really so difficult? Or rage when the torment is past. For God's sake, woman, shut the door behind you. Like love. Love after loss. Why he makes things so difficult, I'll never know. Love in the wake of tragedy. It's just a habit. Something programmed into us. Without rhyme or reason. A persistent emotion. Dogging our lives. Refusing to end when life does. Until heaven only knows what will happen to us all. And as to the future... Because I don't. Who knows what the future will hold. Come on, Elsa. Let's go. Perhaps it will be a wonderful place. Perhaps we'll find some way to correct the faults of nature. Young children need no longer die from a quirk of evolutionary forgetfulness. Life will become a little pleasanter, a little more purposeful, a little happier for us all. I wish to God I could believe that. And yet, in spite of this, there's one thing we can be sure of. My mother and I left the house in Duino together on the morning of September the 5th, 1906. Tragedies will continue to afflict us. Amongst a number of trivial errands, we took my father's suit. Loss is a part of life. We were gone maybe half an hour. It's more than that. An hour at the most. 
It's the essence of irreversibility. It was I who returned first to the house. Programmed into the world through physics. Because Mama was chatting outside. Cashed out in our lives through entropy. And I remember running to find him. In a relentless race towards chaos. The study door was open. And so it is. Or at least it was. That in a hundred years. Not quite fully closed. Or in two hundred years. And through the narrowest gap. We shall find ourselves... I could see my father... Papa? Suspended. Suspended. Papa, 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 Papa! Between love and entropy. Hanging by a short cord from a window casement. Mama, come quickly! Between our dreams of happiness... <laughs> and the struggle for survival. Oh, my God. Between expectation... Mama, do something! And irreversibility. I can't. I can't. Between entropy. His hand is still warm. And love. Louis, Louis, Louis. What have you done? What have you done? So I, I just, before we go into that, I just want to say that this is the opposite of the moment in, in um, The Elephant's Foot, where you think everything is solved and it turns dark. This, this play, actually, is primarily Elsa's story and is told on the eve of her wedding to a man called Ludwig Flam, who was one of her father's PhD students. And that's the, the, the drive of the narrative, is this kind of sense of holding on to those deeply human qualities, even in the unlikely chaos that follows us around. Love and entropy, I had written here. Um, and I guess love and science, what do those bedfellows feel like? Uh, I think, you know, I think, I think if science is not somehow articulating for us a world in which that sense of love, that broad sense of love, not just in the kind of, you know, Joe and Melissa sense, mm. but, but in the, the father-daughter sense in Papa's clean suit, the, um, the sense that George Price exhibits in, in his own life, the end of his life, is science is not bringing us to that. It's failing in its job. I think that's a, a very uh, apt moment, perhaps. Uh, Jerome, I'm calling on Jerome, who's the director of the Science Festival, because he told me that he would be uh, the microphone person. Um, I think it's a very apt moment. Thank you so much for that, Tim. I think that was such a, a, a moving um, uh, place to segue into audience questions. Um, so Jerome's the microphone man. and. Please, any question, no question too large or too small. Is that fair enough, Tom? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah so always, no question always. too large or too small um, uh, for us this afternoon. So um, just put your hand up or give, the, give us a wave, and Jerome will bring the microphone to you. Um, and uh, let's open up the floor. Ash. Kia ora, and thank you for this discussion. It's been fascinating. Um, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I'm interested to hear more about the differences between writing for radio 
and writing for stage. So what are some things that you've found that have worked or maybe haven't worked particularly well in this medium? Um, I started out writing for stage and, and I still love the stage. I mean, I, you know, I think to me it's a very, and it's partly the opposite of what we were talking about before. You know, in radio, it can be a very solitary entertainment. When you're, when you're writing for the stage, the audience is with you physically together and that togetherness of the audience with the performers and with the piece of work is absolutely unique. And that's difficult to create in a radio. I mean, it's nice actually, we've kind of done a sort of hybrid here by doing a few extracts, uh, but typically it doesn't happen. It's typically a quite sort of isolated thing. Um, and and I, you know, I think you have to kind of work quite hard as a radio dramatist to to do that, at the same time knowing that half of your audience is doing washing up, the other half is driving through a busy city. If the, if the, uh, my maths has never been very good, even though I did maths as a degree in the beginning. Another half is taking the kids to school, and and so on and so forth. So you, you actually have a, you know you have to kind of capture them to bring them in, at the same time as giving them you know a little bit of help with the story through it in a way that you can't. You don't have to do on the stage because we're all sitting here. We're all we're all focused on the space of the action, and so you have to kind of create that space in a in a sort of forgiving, flexible way as a radio dramatist. Um, and I do think you know there are plays of mine that went on the radio that I would love to to bring back onto the stage because I think they would they would be good stage plays. But I then have to think about all the devices that I put in there because they were radio plays and how to translate that into the structure of um, the structure of a, of a theatre piece, where where you have these kind of more more a sense of the unity of these actions and that kind of unity of space that the theatre sort of demands, less so in modern theatre, but in classic theatre, um, and and you don't have that in radio. That's a sort of freedom in radio, but actually it's a very good discipline in itself, and so a radio play. I listened to there was a, there was a, a series um, that I did called The Rainbow Bridge, which was, again, about altruism and science. And, and I listened to it um, before I came here to see if I could find an extract. I have got one very short extract, but I think we've had enough extracts, and I'd much rather here have questions. So, but what I found was that's quite demanding. And, and you know, if you create plays, if you create a theatre play which is demanding, mostly the audience doesn't get up and leave. They sit there and they're engaged. If you create a radio play that's demanding, you've got a chance that you know quite a lot of people will turn it off or they will miss the argument. And I actually found myself personally listening to one of the episodes think, and getting frustrated with the episode. And then I realized it was because I was answering emails at the same time. And so you know, it's that there is a sort of sense that the theatre brings of bringing people together with the piece that you don't necessarily have in radio. And you, you have to construct that as well as you can for people knowing that it won't be perfect. I did notice that a lot of, uh, when we were listening to those extracts, a lot of us, me included, sat with our eyes shut this afternoon. So there is something really interesting about the kind of solitariness and, you know, the voice being almost inside our own heads when we listen, when we listen to radio plays. Jessica. Kia ora. Uh, thank you for coming and um, sharing all your, your kōrero with us. I was just um, wondering about what kind of process of workshopping you go through, like if you 
um, work with scientists and work with actors who kind of keep you on track and keep knocking you back into, you know, into shape with, with their ideas. Just if you can talk a little about that, please. Yeah, I get pretty, I get pretty pissed off with actors when they depart from my, my perfect scripts. <laughs> um, that, it's, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting tension. So I don't, I don't, I haven't tended to workshop that much. I mean, I kind of workshop in a, in a research sense. So I will involve myself in a subject matter. And for Cry of the Bitten, for example, I went to the environment, the protagonist is a, a pollution officer in the environment agency. And, and so I went to the environment agency and I spent time with people doing that job and so that, you know, that I, I was speaking from the experience of people and going out on the job with those people. So there's a little bit of that. I like to, I hope that by the time that the script is there, it's something that the actors will understand as, as a full piece. And sometimes, you know, I, of course, you're always surprised and very experienced actors have acted some of my plays and I've always been grateful when they've done something to improve it, but I'm very reluctant to admit that that was often. <laughs> um, that, that's, you know, that's, that is a kind of a, um, an occupational hazard being a playwright, I think, of being a, a kind of being a writer. But sometimes, you know, and you have to accept this, that actually... The, the craft of theatre, the craft of performance is not the same as the craft of art. And I'm, I'm constantly surprised what that craft brings to words which I, which I had written. And, and occasionally, there was, one, there was one example, actually, I don't know that I have it here, but it was in Death of an Altruist, where uh, the actor who was playing the priest who converted George Price to Christianity, and he just did something with the, with the words... He didn't even tell me he was doing it, so I couldn't object. But he just did this sort of slight colloquialization of repeating words more than I had repeated them in my text. And so he gave, he gave it a life, actually, that really you know, made, that, made that work, made it come to life. And in radio, in radio performance, in radio production, you're working to quite fast time schedules. So typically you'll get, you know, you'll get a, a read-through, and the writer will be there with a the read-through, and the, and the actors will ask the writer questions and the writer will attempt to kind of point the way the direction of the play is going. And you're there through the performance as well as the writer, but you are not the director. And that's, you know, that's pretty much, that's very, very clear. So your, your ability to intervene as a writer in that process of, of directing and, and performing and producing the play is, is quite limited. And then you will go from that read through and that sort of question and answer, you'll go directly into the studio and you go scene by scene. Sometimes the producer will do it logically, chronically through the play. Sometimes they'll do bits in, in different orders through the play. And so you'll have some actors there at certain points and others at other points. And that process, I mean, it's really, really intense. Um, and it's, I find it quite stressful as a writer because you, you want to be there for the, the, write, for the actors and you want to be able to give them uh, at least a sense of where you are on it. But you also have to respect that they are entirely their own artist and that the producer is actually the one who's in control of that process and then at the end of that there's actually an editing process in this which is you know equally actually important to the structure of the play and I've worked with some lovely producers who most of them have been very happy for me to be there in the editing process and one of the reasons why I like to be is because I'm quite particular about the music and the use of music and where it comes in and how loud it is and and you know sometimes you can't it, it doesn't always come out right 
But that too, because you have a technical editor and then you have the director themselves and then you have the playwright in the room and you probably got someone, in the old days, in the very first place, you had someone actually cutting the tape as well and gluing it back together again, which was, so you've got this kind of, you know, mixture of high creativity, the director who's trying to keep hold of it all and the people who are cutting tape to put, to stick it back together again. And, you know, that's, that again is, that's a very collaborative process. It's a really important part of the production of the play. And I guess nowadays, a lot of it is easy. You just use Logic Pro or something or iMovie or, you know, something like that. But, um, but these, these processes, um, are, they, they can be, they can, they can go really well. And it's about trust, particularly trust with the director, I think. Um, but they can also be a little, you can have little sources of tension in that process as well, for sure. I have a question myself. If, uh, oh, was there once here? Yes. All right. Oh, thank you. Um, so could you, uh, presumably, your, your creative, uh, your playwriting, uh, your, your, your creative arts side and experience, um, would have led in and, and helped your, I guess, more hard academic, economic research side. Um, what sort of advantages of having both those skills have you found for either the science side and or the art side? Um, and then what would you sort of recommend for, I guess, hardcore scientific researchers to get into the creative arts? What advantages do you think that it lends to, if that question makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, I would say for me, it was about sanity. I had, uh, you know, I had this kind of creative, slightly chaotic side of me. And this, this was not happy inside. I think in, when I spoke to the journalist in the Otago Daily Times, I was talking, you know, I was talking about feeling caged. Um, there is a sense that scientists are caged by logic and by rationality and by the discipline of science itself. And what art can do for the scientist in that respect is allow you to kind of break out of that cage. And a little bit like we were talking about before, you, you know, if I'm, if I'm arguing about the need for policy to protect the world from climate change, I'm not about to bring in a climate denier into my scientific arguments in that arena. But in the drama, I can. And then, and then it becomes a different process. It's almost alchemical, in a sense, because you're bringing those opposites together. And I think that has, that to me, in my scientific work, has a kind of profound influence in the way that I approach the arguments, even in my, in my science. And, and, it, and, and I think the kind of principal characteristic of that, that advantage in the science is, is a, an understanding that the world is not black and white, that none of these arguments are black and white, that actually we do ourselves a disservice, for example, and I feel this a little bit around some of the work around climate change, that it can be very, you know, it can be very hectoring, it can be, you know, you must do this, you must change your life, you must not do this, you must not do that, um, these people are bad, those people are worse, and this is not a way to understand the world, and it's not a way to engage in change, and I, and I think that's you know, something quite unique that, that art can bring to that process. Kia ora. Uh, thank you uh, for this conversation. It's been fascinating. I have something that I can't really articulate 
yet, so this is just a germ. Um, you, I think you said before Darwin, science and religion were compatible or were aligned or something along those lines. And I just wonder, um, it makes me think of the comment you just made where science is, you're caged and not allowed to break out and incorporate humanity, human condition. Does that mean that we really need to rethink what is science and how do we do it? Because if you look at the whole uh, um, history of humankind before Western science, before um, just that professionalization of science, there was the knowledge of healers of women who were then exterminated yeah. through religion and medicine to allow science to develop um, and pushing aside that, all of that historical knowledge of yeah. healing. And so do we need to go back to some of that where we acknowledge different sources of knowledge yeah. and open up those cages? I, I, think that's, I think that's wonderful, actually. I mean, I kind of, I, yes, I think I, I do agree with you. I mean, and there is the Rainbow Bridge, the premise of the Rainbow Bridge, this series about um, looking at the, the life and work of Darwin and altruism in that. It's, it's set in a modern university, and it's a woman whose basic question is, what would the world look like if Emma Darwin had invented the theory of evolution <laughs> rather than Charles Darwin? I just want to play this extract because it illustrates your point really, really well. It's very, very short. Um, and it's just, this is one of the scenes from the Rainbow Bridge. Dear Charles, I watch as she takes her place in the early morning sunshine. My dearest Charles, it is the spring of 1839. I hope you will forgive me. Barely six months have passed for writing to you like this. And yet so much has happened. But whenever I try and talk to you... Since their discussion in the garden at Mare... I find I cannot say... Exactly what I wish to say. Emma and Charles are married now. I'm sitting in our little garden in Gower Street. And already she is pregnant with their first child. Listening to the chaffinches squabble over fallen seeds. Their first of ten. And watching the sunlight dance on the tangled foliage. I see her pause to place a careful hand upon her belly. and feel the new life stirring there. The way it winds its way upwards, forcing a path through the briars, searching for the light. And not for the first time since that day at Mare, anxiety assails her. I suppose our little overcrowded garden must be a part of what you call the dreadful war of nature. Her distress over Charles's views of Christianity her fears for their future happiness. But I cannot help seeing it as a wondrous place. And so she decides to write to him. A part of God's beautiful creation. Even though at that very moment... An element in his wonderful plan. Charles is sitting in a room upstairs working at his ideas on evolution. Of course, I know that your mind and time are full of the most interesting subjects. Ideas that will change the world forever. 
thoughts of the most absorbing kind. Ideas that terrify her. Suppose that the habit in scientific pursuits of believing nothing till it is proved should influence your mind too much in other things which cannot be proved in the same way and which, if true, are likely to be above our comprehension. Science is blinding you to faith, she says. Oh, I wish I could find some way to convince you of this. Faith is not open to proof or disproof. Even though I know that each of us must find our own path towards the truth. It reveals itself directly through individual experience of the living gospel. In much the same way as the honeysuckle twists and strains to find its own small patch of sky. An idea which Charles, of course, will find impossible to accept. Come in. The sound quality, unfortunately, on that one is a, was a little bit low. But the, it, I think, you know, to me, that your question, I love, I love the question. And I think it's, um, it is the starting point for rethinking what science is and how it proceeds. And, and, and it, you know, it hasn't, it's been said before and by people with much more qualification to say it, that, that the science that we've inherited is, is a kind of masculine science and it's missing some aspects of a holistic view of the world. And, and, and to some extent, as you suggested, that's been systematically forced out of our worldview. I'm interested in your comment uh, about some of the characters that uh, you find the most useful are the ones you like the least. I think that's what you said. Uh, the views I like the least. Yes, yeah. yes. I yes. mean, what's interesting is I do tend to fall in love with those characters. Yes. Um, but but and they and they they do tend to be quite successful, which I I'm sure psychotherapy would have something to say about that. But um, I was thinking uh, when you said that about Plato's Republic and how uh -huh. Socrates comes across. He wants he wants to get a point across, but it's the people that are exasperated with him yeah. uh, who are trying to give counter arguments. And the fact that they work through their bad arguments in order to make his more clear. Yeah. That's quite interesting about the dynamic of that. Yeah. Uh, and you talk about climate change activists. You know, we don't want climate change, sorry, climate change deniers yeah. in the room when we're discussing science. Yeah. But in a play, uh, you do want them in the room yeah. because they make it more clear uh, what the point you're trying to make. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of that misinformation around where people have got arguments that don't quite hold together, yeah. um, but uh, we rather shy away from them and don't want to listen to them rather yeah. than hear them out. Yeah, yeah, it's much easier to kind of speak to a room of the converted and then to, to engage in those processes and that, that, you can do that, you can do that as a playwright, you can do it in the drama. And I think, I think the implication of what you're saying, which I would agree with, is we should be doing more of it in science. We should be doing more of it actually in public debate. Kia um, Very quick question on that most recent extract. Who was the narrator? At one point she says, I. The narrator there was the academic who's... Uh, so she, the knock-knock at the end is that it, gives, it moves straight into a scene in modern day. And so the, this, this is the narrator, the, an academic who is looking at Darwin's theory and in particular looking at this really fascinating but complicated relationship between Charles and Emma Darwin. But she's writing essentially at that point, you don't hear it from that extract, but she's essentially write, trying to write a book. And uh, the book is about Emma Darwin and it's about the arguments of evolution and about whether they were 
you know, masculine, capitalistic, rationalistic arguments, and whether the fact that they were that, if they were that, makes them wrong. But her personal interest is in the character of Emma Darwin. So you see her from time to time just watching Emma in the garden. And Emma is actually reading in that extract, is reading from, or it's a, it's a little bit of an elaboration, um, but it was based on a real letter that Emma Darwin wrote to her husband expressing her concerns about his science and its implications for Christianity. Yeah. Were there any more questions? I think that we're going to uh, begin to wrap it up there. Um, but I'm going to ask you before we do, Tim, any projects that you're working on currently or anything that you, uh, playwriting projects or radio yeah. drama projects, I mean, or... I, I, have a, I always have a couple of things on the go. I mean, I, I'm really interested in this question of, you know, climate denial, climate activism, and I think it's been brought to the fore for us through Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, uh, the, the Fridays for Future, Greta Thunberg, you know, a kind of activism that's spilling out, actually, demanding change, and the way that people interact with that. And what I'm trying to do, and the project is really, it's like bringing together the climate denier and the climate activist in, in a play and working through, you know, what happens when they meet each other. And I don't know yet, because I haven't got far enough. But So that's that's one of the projects that, I, that I'm quite quite close to. And, and then there's another one, um, which is actually about a kind of, again, a kind of environmental play, which is about um, the fishing industry and the depletion of ocean stocks, because, again, it's, a, it's an area where, you know, from an ecological point of view, we know that we're damaging fish stocks, and yet we also know that people's livelihoods depend on it. So the, the plot actually is a kind of thriller plot um, which involves, you know, which kind of leads the listener through that kind of story. I don't have commissions yet for those, so any commissioning editors out there, um, it can be um, open to a discussion. Me and the TBD Silicon Tech, tech Guy, who's going to email me. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, we'll have an yeah. episodic podcast. Yeah, I, I like I both those that. ideas. I can, I'll produce it. I don't know what that okay, entails, okay. but yeah. But I think that sounds like a deal. Thank you, Amanda. <laughs> That was the easiest commission I ever got. <laughs> Can you uh, join me, please, in warmly thanking uh, Tim for his wonderful corridor this afternoon? Thank you. Thank you so much. And I do encourage everybody to stay. Please stay, chat with each other, chat with Tim, chat with us if you want to. Um, and just avail yourself of this lovely little living room that we have here in Allen Hall Theatre. Thank you for coming out this afternoon. Um, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. <laughs>